Hey, my friend, it's Julie Clough here, your life and grief coach. Welcome to the Build a Life After Loss podcast. I'm grateful to be here with you today to sit in this space and be. Be with the grief and in the healing, to create space for peace and to share hope for rebuilding your life one small step at a time. Let's get started. Hey, my friends, welcome to this episode with Krista Isaacson. I'm so excited to welcome her today. And before we even get started hearing her story and all of her amazingness, I want to share a little bit about her. Krista Isaacson is an award-winning writer, founder and president of the Reality Writers Online Guild for Nonfiction Authors, and an inspirational speaker. But most importantly, she is a felicitously married mother of six children. I hope I said that right. Including a daughter who has earned her angel wings and soon to be spoiler of her first grandbaby. How fun. We just had our 11th and it's, there's nothing better. Originally from the California Bay area, she and her family currently live in the shadow of Utah's beautiful Wasatch mountains. She loves vintage boutiques, pumpkin spice, painting fairy tale murals and her mountain bike named Breezy. Her library is her favorite room in the house, but her dearest hope is that one day you'll find her in London mudlarking for treasure on the foreshore of the time. Tim's. Tim's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for listening to me meddle through. That was um that was wonderful and it looks like this time of year is a perfect time of year for you. Oh, it's, it's my favorite. And yeah fairy tale murals. It's <laughs> awesome. I love that. Welcome, Krista. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Julie. It's so great to have this chance to chat with you. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about, like you mentioned in your bio that that you've uh, lost a daughter. And tell us a little bit about what life looked like before that happened. <laughs> so um, having multiple children is busy as, as you know, and, um, I, I had, uh, four children and, uh, Laura, my daughter was, uh, the fourth, the youngest. And for some reason, she was just that child that was, um, silent mischief. You knew that if the house is too quiet, something was wrong. She was into something she shouldn't be. And, um, she kept us busy. So, uh, she, she, um, would get into mischief in really unique ways. And my sister-in-law who lives in Pennsylvania has a son who was about the same age. They're like a month apart. And we used to call each other every day to compare mischief, to see which child won the mischief competition that day. I can so, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Alora won on the days where um, she ate all of the pink fluoride tablets out of the bottle and I had to call poison control. That was one day. Um, she won on the day where she was like 18 months old and we had wire racks in our pantry and I found her, she had scaled all the way to the top 18 months. It was clinging to the top shelf where the fruit snacks were stored. And she, wow. when she figured out she could get up there, we had to really lock down that cupboard because she would scale those, those shelves and scare me to death. Um, she won a couple of other, other times, but her, her best win, best worst win, um, <laughs> was the day, uh, it was July. Uh, she was, uh, two and a half years old and I had just finished using, uh, the clippers to buzz my, my older son's hair. 
Um, I just was giving them summer haircuts, you know, buzz their hair real quick. And I made the mistake of just putting the clippers down, still plugged in while I carried um, my son into the shower. So he wouldn't traipse hair all over the house. I was gone maybe two minutes. I just got him in the shower, turned on the water and went back to clean up the hair. And on my way into the kitchen, Alora was running out of the kitchen and I thought she'd just been playing in the clumps of hair, but she wasn't, she didn't have mess on her, like hair mess, but the front of her hair looked a little funny. I'd been, I pulled it into two ponytails and slicked the front really slick. And the front was sticking up in this weird way. And I thought, what have you done to your hair? And I pulled the ponytail holder out and a huge clump of hair came with it. Oh, wow. So she had managed to turn on the clippers and buzz the whole front of her hair. Wow. Um, and she was like bald right here. Mm. So um, that was <laughs> horrible and mischief. And, you know, so it just was a bad mullet and there was nothing we could do. There was no way to hide it. Right. So uh, yeah, she was just mischief all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. So she was keeping you busy. She was. Um, I, I do like my bio says I do have six children. So after that, uh, we found out we were expecting, um, well, I guess it was actually before that we found out we were expecting baby number five in a really interesting way, which is actually where, um, I just released uh, a memoir, uh, titled unbearable burden. And this is where the story starts in my book. Um, my husband is an avid skier. He grew up here in Utah and he loves to ski it. And I grew up in California, so I had never been skiing. And he finally decided that I needed to go, that I needed to learn the joy of the snow. And I was nervous to go, but I, I, I know how much he loves it. So I agreed to go try and uh, went down the bunny hill a couple of times. For those of you who aren't skiers, that's the little easy hill. There's barely even any slope. You can go down it like a snail, really, really slowly. So I got down the bunny hill several times. I said, okay, okay, I, I can see how this would be fun. And let's go for a harder run. So we went to the next level up, which is a green run. Green runs are for beginners. They're decently easy. And so we, we went down to green run several times and I was having such a good time. I said, what's next? What's next? Well, the next level up is called the blue and that's a little intermediate. And remember, this is my first day skiing. So uh, my husband, Travis said, why don't we just stick to the green runs? Uh, It might be a little much to do the blue. And I was like, no, we're going to, let's do it. Let's do it. So we get up to the top of this hill and I look down and it's this bowl, this massive bowl and people are sliding skiing back and forth across this bowl. And my husband says, just don't go straight down. If you go straight down, you'll get going too fast. You won't be able to stop. So go side to side across. I said, okay. He said, are you ready? I said, yes. And then I did exactly what he said not to. And I went straight down this bowl. Sometimes gravity with gravity, we don't have any choice. I can really appreciate this because my husband is a skier. He grew up in Seattle skiing and I grew up in Florida and there were no snow slopes. (laughs) You and I are coast girls. So (laughs) yeah, I got going way too fast on that on that run. And, uh, my husband was behind me yelling pizza, pizza, which again, in skiing terminology, means that you form the, the tips of your skis together to form a pizza and that slows you down so you can stop. And I was pizzaing for my life and just couldn't, it wasn't working. I'm yelling, it's not working. It's not working. And he told me just sit down. 
And so I did sit down just before I plowed over a gentleman who had skied right in front of me and knowing I couldn't stop. So I sat down and it was working until I slid sideways into a soft snow bank and one of my skis stuck in the bank and the rest of me kept going. Oh, wow. I felt the pop in my knee, felt the burn. It was pretty bad. So luckily my husband was right on my heels and he helped me take my ski off and um, got me standing up and oh, the pain was pretty bad. And uh, I waited till the pain subsided. And then I I tried to put my ski back on. And every time I tried to push my boot back into my ski, my knee just felt like jello. I couldn't, I couldn't get enough force to get that ski back on. Mm. And I knew, Ooh, this isn't normal. Not good. Not good. So I got a nice uh, toboggan ride down the hill from the wonderful ski patrol. That was amazing and embarrassing all at the same time. And got down the mountain safely and, and went in and saw a doctor, got um, his opinion. And he said, definitely you've torn something. Um, but look, why don't we just get you in for a scope surgery and uh, let's figure out what's going on. And I said, great. So I was scheduled to go in just to have a, an exploratory surgery later that week. Um, the hospital called to get me pre-registered. And they asked all the just usual questions about your health and your insurance. And one of the questions was, are you or could you be pregnant? And I almost just answered no, but a little voice in my head said, maybe you should check. And so I said, do you mind if I call you back? She said, no problem. So um, took a test that night, found out, yes, I was expecting baby number five. So I called the hospital back and said, congratulate me. I'm expecting baby. She said, great. Congratulations. We'll see you for your surgery in a year. I said, hold on, hold on Oh, a year. I have four children. I'm going to be expecting number five. I'm in a full leg brace and on crutches. And you're telling me that I have to go through an entire pregnancy like this. And she said, yes, sweetie, there's nothing. No doctor will touch you if you're expecting a baby. So good luck. Hope you do well. And we'll see you in a year. And that reduced me to a puddle. My husband came home from work that night and I was just surrounded by used tissues on the couch. I was just sobbing. And I guess what I... The problem was that I didn't understand the timing, right? I I was excited to have another baby. It wasn't that. It was that if I had found out that I was pregnant a month earlier, I wouldn't have gone skiing. So therefore, I wouldn't have hurt my knee. If I hadn't gotten pregnant a month later, I would have had the surgery and my knee would have been fine. And then I could have, you know, had this baby and been fine. Why pregnant and hurt at the same time? That was my question for God, that I didn't yeah. understand why the timing. Yeah. And so I asked my husband um, for uh, what we call a a priesthood blessing in my faith. It's just a blessing. It's a prayer, a personal prayer um, to God for blessing and healing. And I asked my husband to give one to me. And in that prayer, um, God told me that the reason that I needed uh, that I was hurt and pregnant at the same time was so that I would ask for that blessing so that he would have the chance to tell me that this baby that was coming was coming for a very specific reason. And that I just needed to trust God, that there was a purpose that I couldn't see. And I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. So I dried up my tears and decided to go forward with faith, not having a clue of what the next year would bring us. Mm, Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I could really appreciate that because I found out that I was expecting at the time that I separated from my first husband, Mm. I was expecting my third and I had some of those same why questions. And, um, and God told me he's here to be a blessing to you. 
And it was a tremendous blessing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, will have, I will tell you my similar answer in, in a few minutes when I get to that point in the story. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have, we have a similar um, outcome there with these children that uh, Heavenly Father knew we needed at the yeah, time. Absolutely. So, That's beautiful. Yeah, so tell us I, what happened then with your so sweet little daughter, Laura. The amazing thing was that my knee healed enough that I was able to take care of my family. Um, we were just going about having this new baby, a little boy named Noah and, um, enjoying him. And, you know, Laura cut her hair and I was, you know, consumed with trying to get it to grow back out and just normal things, right? Normal, um, day-to-day school and work and raising children type things. And, um, when Noah was about four months old, Laura was, uh, it was about six weeks before her third birthday. Um, we were at a family party and just enjoying the day. And I needed to come home for a meeting that I was supposed to attend. So my husband was at a night school. He was in classes for his MBA. So I brought the kids home and um, started making dinner. And Alora was um, just acting not well. She was acting like uh, maybe the flu. And, and I was just a little bit worried about her. But I also thought, well, maybe she's eaten too many treats at this family party we're at. Uh, the flu had been going around. So I just... Um, kind of brush it off and was taking care of her. But by the end of that night, she was pretty sick. And I went to my meeting and ended up coming home early because she threw up at the meeting. Oh, so wow. got my, my kids all home and was just trying to take care of Alora. And um, I, my husband got home from work and I was laying on the bed with her. I'd finally gotten her to sleep and um, told him how sick she'd been. And he said, do we need to take her into an, like an Instacare? I said, well, I think we're past the worst. She's finally asleep. Why don't we just wait and see what happens? So we were just chatting while I was laying, uh, laying next to her on the bed. And um, suddenly she made a really strange sound that I'd never heard her make and kind of uh, stirred in her sleep. And I thought, okay, well, maybe she just is still not feeling well. Ignored it, kept talking to my husband. It happened a second time and then a third. And each time the sound got louder and her body shook harder. And I said, Travis, something isn't right. Come and watch this. So he came to the bed and we both kind of held our breath watching Alora. And suddenly she had a grand mal seizure. And Mm -hmm. I've never seen anyone have a seizure before. I I recognized what it was, but I'd never been near anyone having one. I didn't know what to do. And it was petrifying to watch her moan and shake and convulse and her body go rigid. And the second it was over, my husband instantly went for his shoes, his jacket, and the car keys. I think he knew we needed to get some help for her. I started to tap and pound on her chest and her face and call her name, trying to wake her up and nothing. She was, she was still breathing, but she was unresponsive. And so I picked her up off the bed and anyone who's picked up a sleeping child knows that even if they're asleep, they still hold their head up or wrap their arms around you or something. But she was there was nothing. She didn't hold her head up. She was just, like I said, unresponsive in my arms. And I was, um, I think I was just frozen in fear. I didn't know what to do. Luckily we had some family members staying with us that night. They'd been there for the family party. Travis's brother came running up the stairs, saw Alora in my arms. And he said, you guys need to go to the hospital now. And that, that was a, a command that kind of stirred me into action. Mm-hmm. And my husband had taken the baby. Uh, no, I was four months old and put him in the car. I grabbed a blanket to wrap around Alora, grabbed some shoes and a jacket and ran for the car myself. We ended up at our local hospital 
who then sent us up to Primary Children's Medical Center in Salt Lake City, which is an incredible children's hospital um, locally. And there, um, they knew the moment that we walked through the doors there that uh, something was seriously wrong with Alora. Uh, they ordered an emergency CT scan and the doctor um, came into the room, had us sit down and he said, I've never found an easy way to tell parents hard news. So I just come straight out and say it. And he took out of his pocket a plain piece of printer paper and unfolded it. It was a scan of Alora's head and he pointed at a massive white mass in the middle and said, she has a brain tumor. Oh, wow. And I felt the air suck out of the room. I felt dizzy and numb. And I couldn't believe that someone had actually just said those words out loud to me. It was kind of like, um, those are the words that are said on hospital dramas on TV, right? And you're removed from it. You're, it, it's not real. It doesn't happen in real life. Not my life, not to me, not to my, my baby girl. And my husband and I just reached for each other, um, just grasping onto each other because we didn't know what else to do. Those are words I just, I couldn't believe. And wow. it was very shocking yeah. in the moment. So, Extremely shocking. Extremely yeah. shocking. I think one of the amazing things was that every doctor after that came in and talked to us and said, she, she has a brain tumor, but you're telling me like she was at a party and she was playing around with cousins. Like, you know, this morning I said, yes. And they said, it's not possible. This just doesn't happen. Kids don't have brain tumors. And, and then all of a sudden they're just not well, like she should have been in the hospital or having chemo treatments or, you know, had a hard uh, way of life her whole life, but she had been relatively without symptoms up to that point. The only symptoms that we could pinpoint was she'd been having um, these tantrums uh, where she would cry and scream and she didn't want me to touch her or hold her. And um, I've got an older son that has some mental illness challenges that started out very similar and about the same age. So we had started taking her to a doctor to find out, you know, if there was something maybe going on, like a mental illness, you know, if she was struggling that way. Uh, we did have her tonsils and adenoids removed because they were so big. She wasn't sleeping well. We were working on trying to figure out why she was having these tantrums. Um, but there was that symptom. And then uh, a couple of days before she was sick, she'd been shaky and kind of off balance, but she was two years old. And the doctors all said, um, you wouldn't have noticed that in a two-year-old because all two-year-olds are shaky and, you know, unsteady yeah. on their feet. And, and it was January, so it was cold and she was little. But later, after the diagnosis of the brain tumor, they let us know that that um, is called what they call drunken sailor syndrome. And it actually, it often goes hand in hand that uh, brain tumors cause unsteadiness and, and dizziness. And that's probably what that symptom was. But all the doctors reassured me that um, those were symptoms I would not have flagged as anything massively wrong. I was thankful that they had, they tried to reassure me because boy, mom guilt is a real thing. And when all of a sudden your child is in a dangerous, life-threatening situation, I cannot explain how instantly I went to, in my mind and in my heart, this is my fault. I'm her mother. I should have known. I should have seen this coming. And I didn't. Yeah, that's hard. I didn't. And I didn't protect her and I didn't save her. And suddenly that guilt, um, it felt like, the world was crushing me. 
And it was the heaviest thing I've ever felt in my life. And I didn't know how to get out from under it. I knew I needed to. I needed to be there for my daughter. I couldn't fall apart because if I fell apart, the doctors were going to have to take care of me. And I didn't want even for a second for them to take their focus off of her. So I knew I needed to like find a way to get a grip and to find a way to be strong and to get, get through this. Um, and the only thing that I could think to do in that moment was to pray, but I didn't know what to say. So I literally kind of called out a one word prayer and it was help, yeah. just help. And the amazing thing was instantly, as soon as I said that word help, uh, another word popped into my mind, two words. Well, I guess it was one. Um, the word was tonsils. Mm. I thought tonsils <laughs> have to do with anything. Alora had had her tonsils removed just three months previous. And I thought, okay, so what about it? And as I started to think it through, it was like, um, it was like, uh, it was open to my mind, this series of thoughts. And I, I thought about, okay, she was in the hospital. She was with other doctors and nurses. She was under their care. They mm-hmm. put her under anesthesia. They woke her up. They looked in her eyes. They looked in her throat. They made sure that she was all healthy and well before they sent her home. And that was only three months ago. Mm-hmm. And then it hit me. Those doctors and nurses who are trained medical professionals didn't see anything wrong with her. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any red flags. They didn't have anything that made them nervous. They sent her home to my care. So these doctors were telling me, right then that I hadn't missed anything. And if I could look back at that three months ago, that was proof to me that I hadn't. And, and God sent that to me with that one word help. He sent me the answer tonsils, which led me down that path to being able to let go for a moment of that mom guilt and be able to get back to focusing on my daughter. And that was a really incredible answer to a prayer in a way I'd never received before. Yeah. That's a beautiful blessing to have that kind of clarity that early yeah. in this devastating, shocking experience. It was. Um, obviously, it, it didn't take away the emergency that was happening around us, but it right. did give me enough courage to move forward, right? To be able to put that behind me for a moment and focus on my daughter. So the first thing that the doctors needed to do was put a drain in her head to drain off excess fluid. So what had happened is the tumor had probably been there since she was born, if not before. And it had grown um, big enough that it had stopped her brain's ability to drain off excess cerebrospinal fluid. Mm. And so the fluid had just been collecting on her brain, which is called hydrocephalus, Mm -hmm. and it creates immense pressure. So uh, they needed to drain that fluid off to relieve the pressure, which is why she'd been having um, these tantrums, she'd probably been having massive headaches. And it's why she'd had that seizure and why she was now unresponsive and in a comatose state was because of the excess, excessive pressure in her brain. So they did that surgery. And uh, the doctor came back to us and said, once again, like, are, you're telling me that this morning, this child was normal and running around and playing. And I said, yes. He said, I don't understand because normal pressure in a child's brain is between 10 and 14 uh, pounds mercury is the way that they measure it. It's like PSI, but for the brain, pounds mercury. So that's the normal pressure, 10 to 14. And when they um, put the drain in Alora's brain, it also measures the pressure. And hers was 135, which he said he'd never seen a living person 
wow. with that number that he he'd never heard of it. He'd never seen it. And he did not understand how it was that high, but she had been fine that morning with no symptoms. He could not explain it. And he almost looked to me like I should have an answer. And I looked back at him like, I, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, except for this must be God's plan for her that she wasn't sick her whole life in the hospital, that she was well until this morning. And then she wasn't, I didn't know what else to say, except for that. I had already now seen several evidences that God was with us, that God was caring for us and, and holding us and showing me, you know, that he was, he was not going to leave. And that was the only answer I could think was that this was her plan. Um, different than most children with cancer. Right. So um, we went forward from there. They uh, wanted to do an MRI to try to pinpoint the tumor to find out exactly where it was that we could start chemo and radiation later that day, perhaps, perhaps do a surgery. We were just trying to make a plan. And so um, And she was still in a coma at this point. Yes. She was still Mm -hmm. completely unresponsive. Um, Wow. It was early in the morning, but family members had started to arrive at the hospital, which was a great support to us. The second we saw Travis's mom and brother walk into the hospital, I suddenly felt like I didn't have to carry this by myself. My husband was with me, but together, you know, we felt like there were more people to help us carry this. And the more and more people came, the more we just felt like there are people here who are not going to let us be destroyed by this, who are going to help us and support us and love us. And just having people, family members and friends around us was a great help and strength to us. So we were waiting in the waiting room with several of them while they took a, the doctors took a Laura to do this MRI and it was supposed to be fast. It was supposed to be half an hour, 45 minutes. And an hour went by, we were visiting with family members, two hours went by and my husband said, I'm getting worried. I'm going to go find out what's happening. I said, okay, but come back, please come back and, and let me know if you find anything. So I stayed there. I was with my baby uh, for a month old Noah visiting with family members. Another hour went by and I was like, I was starting to get panicked at this point and um, didn't know where my husband was. And I was watching the clock and and suddenly a woman I didn't know came in calling my name. Is there a Mrs. Isaacson, a Mrs. Isaacson? I passed the baby off to some family members and stood up and said, that's me. And she said, will you please um, join me in the hall? And that was definitely a red flag at that moment that something was wrong. So I followed um, the woman into the hall. Her name is Jennifer and she was a social worker at the hospital. And she said, I need to tell you that Alora is not doing well. Um, her heart has stopped several times. The doctors have been able to resuscitate her, but she's coding right now. They're doing active CPR. Wow. Your husband is with her and he sent me to find you. And I need to know if you want to be with her. And I said, yes, take me to her right now. And she said, follow me and I'll catch you up as we walk. So we started to walk quickly down the hall and Jennifer caught me up that during the MRI, Alora, the pressure had increased in her brain again. And um, it had caused her heart to stop and they had resuscitated her twice. Um, But every time they tried to do the MRI, her heart would stop again. And so um, they were doing their best to, to revive her. So we started to go quickly down the hall. And um, I, again, was just focused on taking care of Laura and I wanted all the information and I just kept asking her questions and she would answer. And suddenly she grabbed my arms and she stopped me. And she looked me in the face and she said, how are you doing this? And I was taken aback. I said, doing what? 
And she said, how are you not falling apart? How are you not a puddle on the floor? And I didn't know what to say. I, I hadn't thought, you know, that I was any different maybe than any other parent she'd seen. And I opened my mind to, to this question. Like, I don't know, how am I not falling apart right now? How am I, how am I not a puddle? And the answer was so clear to me in the moment. I couldn't believe I hadn't realized it before. And it was because I wasn't alone. There were family members and friends in the hospital there. They had come running. As family members and friends do, the second that someone's in tragedy, people come running to you. And then it was revealed to me. It was just like this idea that, duh, your family members and friends that are on the other side that are in heaven, that know you and love you, they're here too. Yeah, I knew it. I knew I felt that as soon as you said, how am I doing this? I'm like, you were surrounded by angels (laughs) upholding you. There's no doubt. Yes, there was no doubt in my mind then too. And I thought, well, of course they're here. They're, They're family members and friends, just like the ones here on earth. Of course they would come. Why wouldn't they? And all of a sudden I could just feel them around me. And I knew that's why I hadn't fallen yet was because they were there. And I knew that there were some that I don't even know their names. They're, you know, great, 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 great grandparents. I don't know them necessarily, but they know me and they know that I belong to them and they had come running to me. So that was my answer to Jennifer. She, she nodded her head like, okay. (laughs) And we started running down the hall again. Uh, We reached a room, Jennifer opened the door and pressed me inside. And it really was like an emergency room scene that you see on TV. There were at least 15 nurses and doctors in the room. Alora was hooked up to all kinds of monitors and the heart monitor had a flat line beep, like you see on TV. My husband was at the head of the bed, pale, not speaking while all of the nurses and doctors were doing everything they could um, to help my girl. And uh, there was a a nurse kneeling over her on the bed doing chest compressions, another nurse with a bag over her mouth, uh, pressing air into her lungs and people calling orders. And it was, I know that they knew what they were doing to me. It felt like mayhem and chaos, but they were all working as a team to try to save her. And suddenly a doctor yelled, we need to move now. And Jennifer pulled me out of the way as they wheeled the cart out of the room and down the hall. I grabbed my husband's hand and asked Jennifer, where are we going? She said, they need to do an emergency CT scan right now. They've got to do surgery to try to remove some of the tumor. If they don't, she will die. So my husband and I ran down the hall behind this crowd of people that had my girl. And Jennifer said, if you want one last chance to see her before they take her in to the emergency room, you need to follow me. And there wasn't room, they had wheeled her into an elevator, but there wasn't room for us. So we ran down a hall up a back stairway and we stood against a wall right opposite that elevator, the doors where they would open. And Jennifer said, it's going to be fast. You might only get a glimpse. And it didn't matter because I didn't know if I was going to see her again. They were going to take her into surgery into a room where I could not follow her. And I didn't know if she would come back out. And so we stood against the wall and the doors opened and this rush of bodies came out, still doing active CPR on her. And I was frantically scanning the spaces between her arms and legs. And I did get my glimpse. I saw her hair. I saw her face. And then they, they took her into that room and I had to stand outside the doors. 
and just ask God to go in there for me, ask him to be with her in the place that I couldn't go. And he, he assured me that he was, and that the, some of those angels that had been with me would go with her too. That was one of the hardest moments, sending her into that room without me. I can't even imagine how difficult that must have been. It was very difficult. And um, I think, excuse me for just a minute. (laughs) I think the hardest part was just not knowing if that was literally the last time I would see her alive. That wasn't, that wasn't the way I wanted to say goodbye to her. Um, And so Jennifer took us down to a waiting room and we waited in that room for hours, just not knowing. And we felt like every moment that passed, Uh, that probably meant she was still alive. She was still alive. She was still alive. No news was good news. Um, But it was agonizing to just pace this little room um, and wait and wait and wait. Um, At that point, um, the family members brought our uh, three oldest children to come and see us. And that was a a beautiful moment to be reunited with them, spend a moment. And then my mother arrived from Idaho. She'd driven through the night, uh, through the dark and through the snow to get to us as fast as she could. So again, more people coming to support us and love us. And I needed that in that moment. Um, Finally, after hours of waiting, Jennifer came back into the room and told us the miracle that Alora had survived her surgery, Um, but the doctor needed to come in and explain her uh, prognosis and and what was going to happen from here and, and what her state was like. We were overjoyed and elated that she had made it through. Um, and that they were bringing us back to her or they were bringing her back to us and that we would get to see her again. But the doctor, the neurosurgeon came into the room. And he said, you need to understand um, Alora's condition is quite um, severe and she is quite broken. And the chances of her survival are, are slim to none. Um, her, her ribs were broken from repeated CPR her heart and lungs were damaged. Um, He'd been able to remove part of the tumor, but not all of it because she kept coding. Um, The fluid was still uh, filling her brain. Her brain was swelling. They'd had to leave a piece of her skull removed during the surgery on and on all of these horrible things that, you know, our little daughter's body was just broken. And he said, um, you know, miracles happen and I don't want to dissuade you from that, but you just need to know that, that this is uh, where she is right now. And you will get to see her, but just be prepared that it's going to be rough. So I think that was another really difficult, um, pivotal moment because that was the moment where we realized that no matter what, Elora was never coming back to us the way she had been. If by some miracle she survived, she would be in a vegetative state her whole life. And if she didn't survive, she would be gone from us uh, physically. So that was the moment we had to let go of that hope, that the hope for the miracle that we would get our, our cute little two-year-old Alora back the same way she had been. I had to let go of that. And it was very hard to let go of that hope that I would get her back. Yeah, for sure. And, and that doesn't happen in a moment. No, it doesn't. Mm-mm. But again. I think that was uh, because it was a very dark moment and I felt um, almost like I was drowning in the darkness of that moment of having to let go. I'd been clinging to that hope like a life preserver. Mm -hmm. 
And when I had to let go of it, I felt like I was in the dark water and it was threatening to overcome me. And once again, I just needed that help. And I thought of in the Bible, the story um, of when um, Peter walks on the water, he asks Christ if he can come to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, Christ says, yes. And Peter goes to walk on the water and he does for a minute, but then he starts to fall in the water and he feels like he's going to drown. And he offered the same prayer that I had offered earlier. He said, help me to Christ, to Jesus. And Christ reached out his hand and took him by the hand and saved him and raised him out of the water. And I thought, well, if Christ can do that for Peter, surely he can do that for me right now. And so even though maybe my husband thought I was a crazy person, it didn't matter to me. In that moment, I, I raised my hand in the air and I offered that same prayer. And I said, just help me, please. I lifted my hand up and I imagined grasping his hand, grasping Christ's hand. And I knew that as long as I chose to hold on, he would never let go either. And I made that decision right then that I wasn't going to let go, that I was going to continue in my faith, that God and Christ were there for me, that they promised they would be with me, that they could save me, and that that would replace um, the hope that I had let go of her being healed. This would be the new thing I would cling to. I would cling to them. I would cling to the hope that they could save me even through this horrible darkness. And I decided that every time I started to get um, overwhelmed, I just reached my hand in the air and remembered to hold on to him. So, and ultimately, unfortunately, the outcome wasn't what you'd hoped for. No, um, there was a moment uh, after that where there was a, a decision presented to us and um, I'm not going to reveal the whole decision. Uh, spoilers for the book. If you want to read the book, this is a really pivotal moment um, for me in the story in the book, but there was a decision presented to us, a very difficult one, one that I thought was cruel for a mother to have to make. And I didn't want to make it. And um, it was the first time that I was afraid to pray to my heavenly father because I knew he would answer me. And I was not sure I wanted to receive the answer. Mm -hmm. um, I finally knew that that was the only way I was going to find peace. And so I did offer that prayer and the answer came in a really miraculous way. It was very personal, um, very uh, specific way that let me know that it was for me, that he heard me, that he had known beforehand that I would be standing in that exact spot, offering that most painful prayer, needing his help. And the answer was really a beautiful answer. Mm -hmm. um, so Alora ended up passing away only 30 hours after that first seizure. So in essence, a day. So that first seizure we had at home um, and through all of those emergency surgeries and all of the things, it's 30 hours later that she finally passed away. Um, and uh, the beautiful thing is that as I look back upon that time now, if I had chosen not to trust God when I offered that prayer, um, if I had chosen um, to not uh, obey the answer that he prompted me with, I would have missed a really special opportunity to hold my daughter as she passed away. But because I trusted him, because I continued in that faith, I did listen to what he told me to do. And so my husband and I got to hold her. And it was a very sacred, beautiful moment to hold her as she passed away. And I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. So how do you go home from there? Um, going home was horrible. I, I thought, I thought all along that we would, we would only go home after she was ready to come home with us. Right. And all I had left of her was, um, 
some of the hair they'd shaped from her head during surgery in a baggie and a little spot of her blood on a t-shirt. She was wearing like a nightgown and she got a little bit of her blood on it. And that was the only evidence that I was bringing home of my girl. And um, luckily the, the support that we'd felt all along just redoubled once we got home, family, friends, angels, God, uh, there were, there was evidence upon evidence upon evidence that God was listening, that he was sending people to support us. And I really did feel like there were hands reached out in every direction around me and that they were holding me and carrying me. And there was no way they were going to let me fall. There wasn't any way, even on my worst day that I felt like I can't keep going. I can't do this. There were people and there were miracles that happened. Um, one of my favorites, uh, this isn't in the book. So this is a, a special additional story for your listeners today. Um, I had called a, a local photo studio called Kitty Candids, where I'd taken all my children to have their, their baby pictures. And, you know, they're like one-year-old and two-year-old pictures before they started school. And I called them because they had taken the most recent professional picture of Alora, And I wanted that picture for her funeral program and obituary. And I, I just needed the rights to use it. And they said, absolutely come tonight after closing and we'll give you the picture and a sign a waiver. And so my husband and I uh, showed up at Kitty Candid's that night, but they didn't just have the one picture and the release form. They had pulled up every single uh, photo shoot that we'd ever done with Alora. And they had spent hours putting them together in these beautiful collages and framing them. Wow. And they had uh, printed off CDs of every picture and given us the rights to everything. It was this a massive, uh, incredible gift. But there was one photo shoot that I'd completely forgotten about. Um, and here's the story behind that photo shoot. I was shocked to see it because I'd never actually seen those photos before. That's because um, when Noah, our baby Noah, was two months old, I took him into Kitty Candids to get his his baby blessing pictures. It's a baby blessing in our faith is akin to like a baby christening. Mm-hmm. So he would have been dressed in in white clothes. And all of my children before that had a matching picture of them in their blessing outfits, asleep, um, kind of on a little teddy bear with their blankets underneath them. And all of those pictures are on my bedroom wall. So Noah's baby number five, I needed the matching picture. But during that photo shoot, we could not get him to sleep. So I finally gave up and said, I'll come back another day. Tried a second time, same result. The third time we were, we got him to sleep and we're just about to take the picture and the fire alarm went off in the whole mall. We had to leave the mall. And I was like, Oh, that's an unexpected. Yeah. So once again, so three times by the fourth time I was desperate, I needed this picture, but this time I just happened to have Alora with me. And this was again in November. So three months before she passed away, we were there to get this picture of Noah and we were the first ones in the studio that morning and the manager came to me and said, I'm trying to train a new employee on how to take pictures of toddlers. Would you mind if we borrowed your daughter to just do some training? And I looked at her, remember her bangs were all buzzed yeah. on me and she was in a stained t-shirt and I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. That's fine. I had never intended to ever, I didn't even, I guess, no, they actually took real pictures of her, nor did I ever see them or intend to see them. Until three months later, after she was gone, and we're at Kitty Candid's, and all of a sudden, there are these photos of my girl with her funny hair, and her t-shirt, and her goofy smile, and she looked just like she looked um, on the day that she passed away. And I hadn't, I would never have gone to take those pictures, right? I would never 
have taken her three months before her birthday, always went on her birthday. Um, and I hadn't even planned those pictures, but God knew. God mm. knew that those pictures would be precious to me. And so that was why baby Noah hadn't slept in his pictures for those three times. And on the fourth time, I happened to bring Laura. We happened to get those random pictures of her. And then after she was gone, there they were. Yeah. A miracle that God had set up for me, a blessing that he knew would be very um, important to me, very touching. And it was very obvious to me that he'd set that up months beforehand just for me. Yeah. Wonderful. How long ago did all this happen? Uh, this was 15 years ago. 15 years ago. 15 years ago. So she would have um, been 18 this year and graduated from high school. It took me about three years uh, to decide, you know what, I need to write these experiences into a book. It took me six and a half years to learn how to write a book, <laughs> to to do this, the work of studying and learning and going to writing conferences and meeting with critique groups. And then when I decided to self-publish the book, it took me a year to learn how to do that. So it's been a lot of work, a lot of years of learning to unzip my heart, take those really painful, hard moments out and look at them clearly enough with um, the right perspective to be able to write about them. But the beautiful thing is that as I've done that, as I've practiced taking those hard things out that I thought were only painful and only bad, the closer I looked at them, and as I was brave enough to do that, I saw miracles and blessings and help surrounding them that I hadn't seen before. So it's been a really cathartic process to review that time closely, to look at it through the lens of some distance and time, and to see more help than I actually realized in the moment that we'd received. Mm, yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, you know, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like you you had a, s a similar awakening to all of those miracles. And what I have been contemplating more recently is the idea that we have everything we need mm -hmm. in the moment of crisis to get through the crisis. It just takes us the time and the effort to connect to what we already have. Like everything's already in place for us to move through the trials of life. That doesn't mean that we get to skip past the grief. It doesn't mean we get to skip past the pain. We have to do the work of experiencing all that, but it's all there and it's just uncovered and piece by piece by piece for healing to occur. I truly believe that healing is in our blueprint. Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite things is to at this point, look back and see the things that have been put in place, the, the people that have been at the right time at the right place, the the, the process over these last 15 years, um, it is slow and it's step by step. And sometimes it takes looking back to realize how far you've come and choosing to have eyes to see those things, right? Uh, sometimes we can keep our heart uh, hardened to them. We can get stuck in our anger or our guilt, like that mom guilt that I was feeling. We can get stuck in um, anger towards other people or towards God or your higher being. We can get stuck in a lot of places. But I think as we, take step by step, open our eyes to see the things that have been placed in our path, accept them, allow other people to come and, and, and uh, lift us and care for us and to allow that healing and allow opportunities to, to bless us that 
I think one day we look back and we're shocked at how far we've actually come and the beautiful moments that we never thought we'd see again, how many there have been. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, and I can say that your story has blessed me today because I, I experienced something a couple of months ago with, you know, I've grown children now, but we are still the mother, right? Right. <laughs> and um, I had a shocking experience a couple months ago and I went through that same thing of like, why didn't I see? Why couldn't I have helped? Why couldn't I have prevented this? Why couldn't I... And um, you just reconfirmed for me that there's reasons I didn't see mm-hmm. the signs. There are sometimes we're not meant to. The blessing of having her, you know, it's it's hard. But <laughs> yes. but then you think like it could have been, and I'm sure there's people listening that ha- who had a totally different experience where their child was in and out of a hospital for, for several months or years. years, Yeah. Yes. And so, so there's, there's different blessings. There's different challenges to each story and, and it's, it's being able to unpack those and, and be able to look at it and go, okay, this is the, this is the challenge in my story that, that I need to, you know, come to terms with, come to acceptance with, and these are the blessings of my story. I think one of the blessings in the end that I can at this point um, sit here and tell, and tell is uh, that because of the things that I learned and my husband learned and our family learned through this process, we are determined to lift and serve those around us that are going through hard times. We see people in a different way. We have compassion in ways we never would have had had we not gone through this experience. And so in that way, I do not believe that Alora's short life was a waste. We are going to ensure that it was not by making sure that we take the opportunities to turn and lift people who are standing where we have once stood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the full circle healing comes. When yeah. you can take the experiences that you've been through, the hardest, darkest, most painful moments, and come to a place where you can turn and lift someone who had who is now standing where you've stood. There is great healing and purpose then to the pain that you've been through. And um, that is what our family is determined to do forever. So that Alora's story is always known. Her name is said. Her um, her sacrifice is worth something. We will make it so that uh, it is turned into a blessing that we can spread as far and wide as possible. And so all of that would not have been possible had we not gone through the hard days if we had not gone through the darkness. Yeah, that that's absolutely beautiful. And and I often I often reflect on, you know, my kids died at age eight and ten. Mm-hmm. Um, David was eight and Carrie was ten. And I often think if that was God's plan for them, which I feel certain it was, and I have confirmation that that was God's plan for them before they even came, that I am blessed to be their mother. Mm -hmm. And I had a choice. I could be their mother for eight and 10 years or not be their mother. And I'm grateful to be their mother. And I'm sure that you feel the same. Yes. Ooh, I forgot that I'm supposed to tell you about why that baby, baby Noah was such, uh, was supposed to come at the right time. I, I would, you guys would all be sad if I didn't finish the story. <laughs> it was a few months after the funeral. 
and everyone had gone back to work and school and I was alone, very alone in my house. And, you know, eventually even your friends and family have to go back to their lives. There is a moment where you feel the support isn't gone. They haven't left you, but you do have to start to learn how to walk on your new baby deer legs. It feels like that. Like you're just a brand new baby deer or a baby lamb in this world. That's brand new to you. It's a new normal. It's a new everything. And and you have to learn how to move forward. And um, I was feeling very, very scared about my new future. And all of a sudden, I'm holding this baby, Noah. He's four months old. And he just looks up at me and he grins and he's giggling. And he's so unaware of all of the hard things that we've just been through. And I just started to laugh. And all of a sudden, it hit me. The words in that blessing that I received that this baby was coming for a very specific reason that I needed to trust. And then I could see it. He came at that moment because I needed a four month old baby to hold, to fill my arms, to make me laugh, to give me a purpose as a mother, that there was still a little person that needed me to get up every morning and take care of him. And I just was so thankful that uh, I had had that little, that blessing before to know what a blessing this baby was. He's now 16, Noah. And I remind him about this all the time. He was sent in the middle of my broken knee at this weird time to be a blessing to me. And I just, oh, I just snuggle him still. He's 16. And sometimes he's like, stop mom. But you know, (laughs) I still have to remind him you were sent here to be my blessing. So Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's wonderful. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Can you share um where people can find your book, where they can connect with you? Sh- share you. all the yes. share all the good stuff. All the things. <laughs> uh, my my book is called Unbearable Burden. Um the the subtitle is One Mother's Decision to Trust God When He Asks the Impossible. Krista M. Isaacson. Um and you'll notice uh really quick a little uh little Easter egg about the title, you'll notice when you look at the book, the un of unbearable burden looks like it's fading away or being blown away. And that's because I I wanted um, people who see the title to realize, yes, this is a heavy story. And there are things that we all feel are unbearable in our lives. But with the help and the healing that come from our family or friends through professionals, through God, those unbearable things can become bearable. And um, that was actually my son Caleb's idea. Uh, so that the cover wouldn't look so heavy, that the un looks like it's being blown away and turning bearable. So just notice mm-hmm. that Easter egg, and that's my cute son, Noah, or uh, Caleb. Mm-hmm. And um, so you can find that on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can also find me on my website, KristaMIsaacson.com. Isaacson is spelled I-S-A-A-C-S-O-N. And then um, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Krista M. Isaacson. Yeah, and that's Krista with a K. Yes, I guess. Yeah. Both of my names are a little tricky. Krista with a K, Isaacson with two A's. Yeah. I have red glasses. So that, that helps. (laughs) That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here today and blessing us with your presence and your story and your experience and uh, so many beautiful gold nuggets. I, as I listened to you share your story, it was a remembrance for me of some of my own experiences and, and it's an awakening. I think healing is an awakening and you walked us through some healing today. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Julie. I just am really thankful to be able to share my story and my thoughts and hope it uh, spreads hope to other people as well. Absolutely. 
All right. Thank you for being here with us today. Remember, I believe in you. I love you and have a wonderful week. Bye.